All right, looks like we're at time, so good morning, everyone. So last week, we had left off with the little children coming to Jesus, and we talked a lot about infant baptism and went off onto that for a while. And so we'll circle back around to that. I'll give you a few minutes if you guys have any more questions that became pressing as you thought more about it. But if not, then we'll look into the story of the rich young man, and then depending on how much time allows, we may look into Jesus' foretelling of his death for a third time in Mark's gospel. But before we get into any of that, let's begin with the invocation and the Lord's Prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. All right, so before we get into the next passage, were there any other questions that were kind of left unanswered last week? Anything else that came up? Nothing? Alrighty. So we'll get into the story of the rich young man coming to Jesus and asking him, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we'll get Jesus' answer to that and how we are to think about wealth and the false gods and the idols that we make for ourselves. So beginning in Mark chapter 10, verses 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So we have this man coming up before Jesus, and you know him kneeling before him. And so typically that's, you know, expressing some sort of reverence or honor there. But also it's used in Matthew's gospel of the soldiers kneeling before Jesus and mocking him at the cross. So also kind of using that, something that is meant for reverence in a mocking fashion here. But so he kneels before Jesus, and so again, acknowledging this authority that Jesus does have. But then he asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And as one of my seminary professors would say, wrong question. Him thinking of, what must I do? you know, the emphasis there. But, you know, that's the question that plagues a lot of Christians. And, you know, we talked about that even this morning in our book study class about justification, sanctification, works righteousness, and all of that. But, you know, they're always asking that question of, well, have I done enough? Is my bank account of salvation in the red, in the black? How am I sitting before God here? You know, is that one sin going to tip me over. And so Satan loves to play on that of, you know, well, have you really done enough? You know, that one sin that you keep on doing, you know, him saying, well, you know, you did that one more time. Surely you don't truly believe in God then. After all, look at what you've done in your life. But here we'll see Christ giving the sweet gospel to that. But then, so he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he'd started that out with good teacher, what must I do? And so Jesus' response in verse 18. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So Jesus, in his usual fashion, doesn't quite answer the direct, as directly as we would like of what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, let's reshape, or refocus you for a minute and address the real issue here before we get onto your question there. So he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So there's several things that kind of we can take away from this interaction. And so the first is that Jesus is taking the focus of the man off of himself himself being the rich man coming to him and then focusing him onto God. 
Because remember with this question of what must I do? So now Jesus is saying no one is good except God alone. So he's already starting to kind of shift that focus off of the man's narrow path of what must I do to do this here? So he brings God to the forefront. And then again, a not so subtle way of Jesus saying that, you know, you can't do it alone. So he's putting the focus on God here. And then finally, that Jesus isn't here saying that he, being Jesus, is not good. He's not saying, why do you call me good? I'm not good. He's saying, no one is good except God alone, i.e., I am God. And so he's not quite, you know, we're not taking this passage to mean that Jesus is somehow separating himself from God the Father in that respect. Then Jesus continues on. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And so some commentators, take, they note the different ordering of the commandments here. If You know, you get five, six, seven, eight, and then... Why is four thrown in kind of at the end of that numbering? Your guess is as good as mine. Some try to point to some linguistic thing that, you know, Jesus is doing here, but who knows, really. Either way, it's not the ordering that's important here. But again, he's focusing all these commandments are the second table of the law of our relationship with man here. Later on, he'll address the first table. But here he's saying, you know, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. And for that one, it's a weird translation, you know, that's not how we remembered it and how we learned it. But that's coming from Malachi 3, verse 5. In the ESV, it translates it as oppress. But that's where he's getting this translation from. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that that word appears and that Jesus carries over into here. And a little bit of history on that, the Septuagint or the Greek translation. There's the old legend that in the third century, the king summoned 70 or 72 translators to come together and supposedly locked them all into different chambers. And miraculously, they all came out with the exact same translation of the old text. And so that's as the legend has it. It's probably not quite how it happened, but either way, that's what we mean whenever we talk about the Septuagint or the Greek text. It's this old translation of the Hebrew text into the Greek. And so it can sometimes be beneficial, like in this passage, of seeing how in the Old Testament they translated it into Greek and then seeing parallels then with the New Testament here. But all that aside, so he's focusing here on the second table. And then the man so honestly answers, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. So you can almost picture how earnestly he actually believes this. Well, I haven't killed anyone. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't done any of that. So, yeah, I've, I've done all that. What else must I do then to inherit eternal life here? And so, you know, with Matthew 5 in mind, we know, in fact, that he hasn't kept even a single one of these, as none of us have, of, you know, I say to you, you know, even if you've been angry with your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. And so, the rich man here, he's taking it in a very literal, very minute, or focused example of that of, well, yeah, I haven't committed adultery, so I'm good. Check that box. Now, what else must I do here? But Jesus is then going to really get to the heart of the man's issue here in 21. Before we get on to that, any comments, questions, or anything? Mm-hmm. Why was it translated into Greek? So, why was it translated into Greek? 
Um, from what I had read, he was just collecting this huge library, and so another piece to that would be, you know, a translation of that. And also, as you know, time went on, people were knowing the Hebrew language less and less adequately. So, whenever the Hebrew first started, we show you another time. But with the Hebrew text, there weren't any vowels originally. All the vowels are these little pointings and everything. And so it used to just be the consonants were there. And people knew the language so well. You know, even with English, if just the consonants were there, all the words were smushed together, when you're familiar with the language, you, it doesn't bother you that much. But as people are learning it less and less and not being as familiar, then they had to add the vowel pointings, and then even more so, you know, it's going to be more beneficial to then translate it into Greek. More native, native tongue there for them. Uh, you're probably familiar with Josh McDowell's explanation for the Hebrew and the Greek. Are you? I wonder if it holds any water. But mm-hmm. he would he, if I remember correctly, said the Hebrew language is a very limited, well, I shouldn't say limited, very concrete and uh, kind of language where the Greek is more abstract and it's easier to make new words and structures. And But he c- parallels the, the Hebrew to a closed community and it's mm-hmm. like a closed, very concrete language. Mm. And in the Greek... And the yeah. New Testament was written in Greek, which mm-hmm. would appeal to a larger, wider audience, that kind of thing. Yeah, I haven't heard that before. Kind of actually heard it kind of the opposite, where okay. the Hebrew is more fluid and more dynamic, and then Greek is a little more, I don't want to say Germanic, but where it's very structured. And there is still some fluidity there. But it's going to be a lot more widespread, you know, as the kingdom, you know, spreads and Greek becomes the language of the land. It's going to be known more widely there. And so that would be kind of the language of the people. Kind of like how English, you know, nowadays is the language that business is conducted in. That kind of would have been the same thing for the Greek, I would think. But Anything else? Now Jesus shifts the focus from the second table, which the man so earnestly believes that he has kept. And so in verse 21, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. You can almost picture Jesus kind of as a loving parent of Oh, that's so cute that you honestly believe. You know, he just looks at love on this guy of how earnestly he believes that he has kept this. So he looks at him and he loved him and said to him, you know, you like one thing. And so go sell all that you have, give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. So now he's kind of poking right at the man's false god that he has, namely his wealth here. So the man thinks, you know, he's kept the second table, the, wa- the law, perfectly fine. He's all fine and good. But then Jesus get, you know, hits him right where it hurts of go sell all that you have. So now we really see it revealed of who this man's God is, namely his money here. And so as some of the commentators note, it is important they argue that, you know, Jesus is not saying, everyone, go sell everything that you have, give it to the poor. This isn't a blanket statement of, everyone must do this. But rather, who is this man's false god? Namely, his, his wealth. And so therefore, get rid of that false god. Give it to a worthy group of people, namely the poor. So rid yourself of that false god and then come and follow me. And so it's not that everyone should, you know, get rid of all that they have and 
you know, live a life of destitution there. But that is what he is calling this man to do. And so we have that there. Let's see. Then verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So in the text, this is actually the first time that we're told that the man was rich. Our English Bibles kind of spoil that part of the story with all of our headings of the rich young man. But here we really get, you know, kind of the crescendo of it all, of him walking away sorrowful, for he had, he had great possessions there. And then verse 23, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. That's a, a verse that gets a lot of people tripped up, isn't it? Of what do you mean if can wealthy people enter the kingdom of heaven? What is the point of this passage here? It's this man's wealth that, that has then become his false god. And how tempting it is, even for all of us, of having our wealth become our false god. And that be what we put our fear, love, and trust into. Of well, my bank account's pretty low, so I'm going to skip church this week and go do another odd job, and all these things. How quickly wealth can become that false god for us, and so it can be all too tempting. And so that's why he is saying, how difficult it will be to enter the kingdom of heaven with that. Not that it is impossible, as we'll see later on in verse 25 when we get to that. But how that is a great temptation of ours to make that our false god. Likewise with our families can easily become our false god, our idol, our careers. Any of those things can become that idol that we put our fear, love, and trust into rather than into God here. Then in verse 24, And the disciples were amazed at his works, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And so, you know, these disciples are amazed at what he had just said of how difficult it is. So then Jesus puts it forth again of how difficult it is. But he introduces it with children. So then that recalls us back to last week of the little children coming to me, and to them belongs the kingdom of God. And so it's this term of endearment for his disciples of, you know, my dear children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God if you have great wealth. Then he'll continue on later on with, God, it is, all things are possible. But so that just brings us right back to where we were last week with that term of endearment. And then we have the phrase, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And so there's two different kind of interpretations to this, depending on which commentary you read or anything. And so the first is that a camel would have a better chance of going through the eye of a needle than for a man to enter the kingdom of God on his own. And then the second one is that a rich man can certainly enter the kingdom of God, but with the temptation of wealth being your own God, it's exceedingly difficult. So there's not too much of a difference, but Veltz, the Concordia commentator, kind of puts those two forward there. So either way, I mean, you look at a camel, you look at the eye of a needle of not really possible. It's going to be with great difficulty to enter through that. But any questions on that as we go through? This is a fairly straightforward passage here of, you know, warning against wealth and false idols. Chris is coming up with it. Too far afield to think of this as 
Humility. I, I am not. Thank God is everything. Can you expand on that a little bit? Well, oh. I visualize, you know, how would a family be a little? Oh, I see. That. Yeah. So, but is it is it is that the way you really are? Understand humility versus humility before God. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a job. It's a situation. Mm-hmm. Somebody got big, make a big needle and get a big budget. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that's something we could definitely learn from this. But I think, as we will see. Let's go ahead and read on, and then we'll get to your question, Barry, here in a second. But in 26 and 27, and they, the disciples, were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And so the point that he's making there with the camel and the needle is, you can't do that. You can't get a camel through the eye of a needle. Likewise, you can't do anything to inherit the kingdom of God, which again, inheritance language, that being a gift there. And so I think the main focus there is you can't do that, and so then God is the one responsible for that. But I think that is a great lesson still of you know, approaching it with humility of, I can't do that on my own. Um, I grew up in a church where uh, the offering envelope said current expenses, benevolence, and building fund. You allocate where you put the money. Mm-hmm. Benevolence, I guess the, these funds went towards caring for body. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm wondering where this concept of hanging on to wealth and wanting it and, and selfishly holding on to it as individuals that risen out of the fact that the church has uh, benevolence and caring for the body. Is is there less of that going on now? And should the church form in that area? Uh, yeah. Just we'd like your thoughts on that. I mean, especially here in the West, how individualistic have we become? Of I'm taken care of, so I'm good. I'm just going to continue on to my individual path way and how quickly you know we neglect the others in our congregation of if someone else is struggling helping them out and so it's not to say it doesn't happen because it certainly does there are very very faithful christians that are doing that but we kind of have gotten into that mindset of my family or my immediate little group of people is taken care of as opposed to the body of christ Seeing as a whole. Absolutely. Yeah. Any other thoughts, questions? All right. So we'd already hit on 26 and 27 a little bit of with man, it, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Just a note, please don't make that into your bumper sticker and just drive around town. All things are possible with God. Just an aside. But continuing on in verse 28, Peter began, to say to, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So Peter's coming before Jesus and saying, you know, we've left our families, we've left our livelihoods, and all this to come and follow you. So Jesus acknowledges that of, you know, truly you have left all those things there. And that there's no one who has left all these who will not receive a hundredfold 
now in this time and in the time to come. And so, where is that? Lost track. Yeah, so he's not talking about here of, you know, no one who has left house or brothers or sisters and all these things. He's not saying, go leave all of these things and then you will receive this great reward. But that's all predicated on the fact of, for my sake and for the gospel. And so, are you willing to leave those things if it comes to that, for the sake of the gospel? And not, well, I'm just going to abandon my vocation as mother, father, child, all of those things. And then I'll just receive a great reward for that. So the confessions here have a great, great piece here. And it's in um, Article 27 of the Apology. And so it's talking about the monastic vows and the monks, you know, abandoning their vocation as a father and all these things. And then going off to the monastery. But here they write... There are two kinds of leaving. One happens without a call, without God's command, which Christ does not approve. The works we choose are useless services. When Christ speaks about leaving wife and children, it becomes clear that he does not approve this kind of leaving. We know that God's commandment forbids leaving wife and children. God's command to leave is different, that is, when power or tyranny pushes us either to leave or to deny the gospel. Here we are commanded to bear injury and should rather allow not only wealth, wife, and children, but life to be taken from us. Christ approves of this kind of leaving, and so he adds, for the gospel's sake, citing Mark 10.29 here. He does so to illustrate that he is speaking not of those who injure wife and children, but who bear injury because of the confession of the gospel. For the gospel's sake, we should even leave our body. Here it would be ridiculous to hold that it would serve God to kill oneself and to leave the body without God's command. So too, it is ridiculous to hold that it is a service to God without his command to leave possessions, friends, wife, and children. I don't know if I could explain that any better than they do in the apology of that twofold nature of there's two kinds of leaving. One, without God's command, just for your own self-interest and mind. And then the second of being willing to leave for the sake of the gospel if God would require of that there. So that's what Jesus is speaking of here is that second type of leaving for the gospel and for his sake here. And then here at the end, again, he's bringing up this common theme that we've seen, you know, with the child, you know, the least of these, but many who are first will be last and the last first. So we've seen that all throughout and we'll see it again here in a few verses when James and John request of, you know, they're going to be at Christ's right hand and left. He'll again hammer that into them there. But any questions on this passage? Nothing? Okay. So then we'll move on to Jesus foretelling his death a third time. And so we'll look at the previous two times that Jesus does this. Look at a few of the differences, kind of the different focuses of each. And then, again, we've kind of hit, pastors hit on the previous two. So it's pretty familiar ground, but still warrants us going over it. But in verse 32, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them, what was going to happen to him. So they're on the road. They're going up to Jerusalem, which is quite literally going up since Jerusalem is at a couple thousand feet above sea level there. So while they're on the road, so they're on this way is another way to translate that. The way, the road, the path, 
one of those things. So we have the Lord leading them on this way. And so it's a theme we see in Isaiah 48 of, you know, the Lord leads his people on the way here. But then, uh, let's see. We can turn to, if you have your study Bibles, if you want to open up to just inside the front cover of your Bibles or anywhere you have your maps. If not, I'll still try to help picture where we're at here. And so we have these three predictions that Christ has made throughout the Gospel of Mark. And so then the first one is at Caesarea Philippi, which, so you have the Dead Sea down south, which is near where Jerusalem and everything is. You go up north to the Sea of Galilee, and then you keep going straight north from there, and you have Caesarea Philippi. So that's the location of the first prediction that he is making. And so then the second is in the region of Galilee, which, surprise, surprise, is by the Sea of Galilee. So you have Caesarea Philippi, region of Galilee, further south. And then now this third one is on the way to Jerusalem. And so that's going to be way further south by you know, the Dead Sea where Jerusalem is located. And so we see throughout these three predictions this way to Jerusalem, this path that Christ has been going down for his crucifixion. So it's not that he's just wandering around and you know, just happens to get caught by a mob of people and they crucify him in Jerusalem and he was just you know, a victim of circumstance there. But this has all been the way that he's been going through. He's been predicting it from the beginning, even from the very beginning of Genesis, has been foretold of. And so we just see this, at this movement, and Mark is very particular of noting where these locations are taking place. And so we see that movement down to Jerusalem and down to the cross there. And so, let's see. They were on the road going back, back into Mark 10 here. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And so we have the language of praago, which literally means going first, pros first, and then ago to lead or to go type of thing. And so Jesus is leading them. He's walking ahead of them. So you just have this picture of, you know, the 12 disciples kind of back here and Jesus walking all alone up to the cross. You know, he still has all the triumphal entry and everything, but on his way to Jerusalem. Christ walking, a, walking alone ahead of his disciples, leading them on to that path. And then the disciples were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. So as the time gets closer for his crucifixion, he's been foretelling of his crucifixion at least twice that Mark records here. And so they're probably starting to get a little more of an idea of somewhat of what's going to take place. As we have seen and probably will continue to see, they don't quite grasp what's fully going to happen or anything, but they become afraid, those who followed him were afraid there. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to them, to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him, and after three days he will rise. And so we can go through, we're not going to go into this morning, we can go through all those verbs of what's going to happen. And we see them all being fulfilled. So he, it's not, again, not that he's just kind of the victim of circumstance here. But he knows full well what awaits for him. And yet he still willingly goes on that path. Oh, Chris is, oh, Chris is coming back now. Yeah, well, he's bringing that up. Just how great of a comfort question up here. Uh, how great of a comfort that is for us that you know, he knows 
all of this that's going to take place. But he still goes. So if we knew what kind of fate awaited us, not the crucifixion, not all of that, but would we willingly go like he is just on that way? My question is, why did he use um, second person saying they will mock him? You know, in other words, he didn't say, I am going to be mm. taken and killed and mocked and condemned to death. Why did he choose to make it third person, is that considered? Mm. Um it's just interesting to me. I may have heard at one time, but I do not have any clue what member. Yeah. Let me look at the other two predictions and see if he... The second one is in Mark 9, starting in 30. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. So again, still kind of that third person there. In the first one, in 8, starting in like 34, uh, let's see, actually in 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So yeah, they're all kind of in that third person. And my hunch is with him saying, you know, uh, see, back in chapter 10, and the Son of Man will be delivered over. He's, again, referring to his role as the Son of Man. And so then putting the focus of what those others will do to him, namely me, you know, for Jesus there. But I hadn't noticed that. I don't know if it could be intentional of what the, own, the very own people that should know what's going on of the chief priests, the scribes, the ones who know of the prophecy of the Messiah to come. They're the very ones that they will condemn him, they will flog him, and all that. So that could be kind of a focus of, you know, very own chosen people of God being the ones that hand him over and do all that. No, that's a great question. Mm-hmm. We've also seen, though, how he's spoken to them plainly, and they say, that'll never happen, Lord. Yeah. <laughs> so you could probably speak as plainly as you want to them, and even to us, of, what do you mean you're going to die and rise again in three days? No, you're supposed to, like, usher in this earthly kingdom of the new Jerusalem here, so what do you mean you're going to be put to death? Far be it from you, Lord. So... Yeah, I mean, you have the suffering servant in yeah. Isaiah okay. of the things that will happen, and then in Psalm 22 as well. And, and so where, what, Bible, uh, what book in the Bible refers to the Son of Man? I think Daniel has it somewhere. I don't know if that's a language used in Isaiah 52, 53. Yeah. And and I just as a, I remember and maybe the man in the room knows this better than I would understand. But as I understand it, in the military, you do not refer to yourself directly. I forget what the terminology mm-hmm. is. And these are men of power, but they take this humble position and do not reference themselves as higher. Yeah, it's just when you when you when you assume the office, like the president doesn't refer to himself. Interesting. That's a, that's a good insight. That could be something to poke around more into and see. That could be something to poke more around and see. It could be yeah, interesting. That's, the, why, that's why, you know, government needs to see when the president's going under anesthesia, they have to remove him as the office. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. So you have something of Christ in his office as that, you know, him referring to it. It's interesting. Any other thoughts on that one? We're trucking right along today. Last week we got through, what, three verses, I think? So that one's a little more more questions that we're going to be asked about that one. All right, so then on to the request of James and John. So starting in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want to... We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. What a statement that is. Can you just sign this check? Yeah, there's no dollar amount, but trust me, it's fine. Just, just sign on the dotted line of... Mom, Dad, can I, can I do this? Depends, what is it? But. Anyways, Jesus still plays along, though. He doesn't agree to it, but he answers with... Yet again, a question. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? Before I give you an answer, what is it that I'm agreeing to? So when they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And so we've seen this and we've continued to see this, but again, the disciples thinking about this earthly kingdom that he's ushering in, and he's going to be this new David, the new Jerusalem and all that. And so, hey, whenever you're that, you know, the big honcho up there, can we sit your right and your left hand in this earthly power here? And Jesus quickly puts them in their place of what, what that really means to sit at his right and his left hand. But again, this, the right and the left the position of power here. And so it was um, Veltz, the Concordia commentator, he notes that in the rabbinic tradition, whenever three people were kind of walking, when the teacher or the master was walking, it was him in the middle, then the elder of the other two on his right, and then the younger on his left. So you kind of have that hierarchy of power there, just kind of the structure of how one is, you know, one walks, and we even see that today. Whenever important people are walking, they're typically kind of in the center, and then oh, it's kind of this little hirelings over on one side and the other type of thing. So that position of power, and so they're hoping to kind of be close to him whenever he comes in his glory there. And then we see this also in Psalm one ten, verse one: "The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand." until I make your enemies your footstool. So speaking of the Son, you know, sit at my right hand. Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father and the Apostles' Creed. Now, again, that's not being the literal, physical right hand of God, which some denominations argue and then say that well, if Jesus is stuck up there in heaven, he can't be present down in the sacrament because he's physically at the right hand of God. The infinite not capable, or the finite not con- capable of containing the infinite, and all those things. So whenever we talk about that right hand of Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father, just be careful of some denominations speaking that same language but meaning something completely, completely different by that. So if they can sit at his right hand and at his left in your glory. And so we have two definitions that we kind of see for glory here. And first, in the way the disciples are pointing to it, is this kind of reputation, this repute of when Jesus comes in his glory and he's this great and mighty earthly king. If They can also kind of be little partakers of that. But then there's also God's glory that we see throughout Scripture. We see that in Exodus 24 with the glory cloud 
on Mount Sinai, in Exodus 40 of the glory cloud in the tabernacle, the presence of the Lord there on the Mount of Transfiguration, Christ's glory shone forth there. And so we have this glory of the Lord that they're speaking of here, that they don't think they're really speaking of, of whenever Christ comes in his glory is chiefly his salvific work. That is where God's glory is present there. The glory for the people. You know, him coming for the salvation of his people there. But their focus, again, on the here and now, the earthly and physicalness of this. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? That one really threw me off at first with the whole baptism thing until I read, you know, in the study notes of the study Bible that, you know, early church, in the early church, the martyrs referred to martyrdom as, you know, baptism by blood. And so, which was an interesting connection of, you know, when we are baptized, we are baptized into Christ's death there. And so this baptism, this full immersion, don't bring that all the way into the baptism of sprinkling versus immersion. But, you know, this full cleansing of that, this washing in the blood of the lamb there. And so we have that. And then also, are you able to drink the cup? So we see that, you know, all throughout Scripture of that being synonymous with God's wrath. See that in Psalm 75. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drink it down to the dregs. Also in Jeremiah 49, For thus says the Lord, If those who did not deserve to drink the cup must drink it, will you go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, but you must drink. So we have that idea of drinking of the cup is of God's wrath. And so we see that in the Garden of Gethsemane, of Jesus saying, you know, let this cup pass. But if it's not your will, you know, but if it's your will, I'll do it. And so we have that image there. And so he's saying, you know, are you able to drink that cup, that cup of God's wrath for all the sins of mankind? No. Only he is able to drink that cup and fulfill, take on that God's full wrath in order for the salvation of all of mankind here. But then the disciples said to him, we are able. (laughs) That one speaks for itself. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we can do that, Lord. You know, we're willing to die for you. We do any of that. But when push comes to shove, they're going to be the first ones to run away or fall asleep or do all that. But they will still suffer, as we'll see. Jesus speaking of here in a moment. But they think, you know, we'll fight for you, we'll die for you, we'll drink that cup, whatever comes our way. So Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So we have the interesting phrase here, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And so it's still a little difficult to parse that out, but Veltz in his commentary notes that there's two different kinds of cups that we're talking about here. The first is the cup of God's wrath, which Christ alone can drink. But then there's still a cup or a baptism that the disciples will be baptized by or drink. And that is the wrath among mankind, the suffering for the sake of the gospel that they will face, that they will have to drink and bear of the persecutions that will come their way, the ridicule, all of that, same ridicule that we as Christians will face, that we will drink that cup and be baptized with that. 
So that suffering that awaits us, but not in a way that we are able to drink the cup of God's wrath and do that which only Christ can do here. Jesus says, But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Oh, Barry, yeah. I just had a quick question. Uh, Drinking the cup, uh, the second part, you know, where suffering of Christ. Paul said, I think, in, in somewhere uh, in his writings that he, he was poured out like a drink offering. Mm-hmm. Is, is there a connection between the two? Are those one in the same? Is, is that what he meant by being poured out as a, as a drink offering? You remember where, that, where he's, Paul says that? can't remember. I want to look at the context of it and see. Drink offering. Uh, Philippians 2.17, it's showing. Backing up to verse 14, do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So the study Bible notes on that verse says, Wine or oil was poured out in the Old Testament sanctuary, sacrificial offering of your faith. Literally, the sacrifice and service of your faith. Faith produces a sacrificial attitude which frees us to lay down our temporary physical life in the interest of eternal life. Hmm. Poured out as a drink. Yeah. Yeah, I would think that would be emphasis there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we have that cup, you know, all throughout, and then you know, even in the Lord's Supper, you know, the cup. So you have the imagery of Christ on the cross and his blood flowing out, and you have the art of the chalice there, you know, receiving that. And so that is a cup that you know, is the gift given out there, and not a cup of wrath, which... We cannot drink that only Christ drank for us. Any questions? Chris? I've been thinking about balance, and I'm just wanting to um, ask you if um, atonement is a, is that a kind of balance? And if it is, then... It looks here like it's a, you know, well, in terms of visual balance, there, you know, there's symmetrical balance and asymmetrical balance. And it seems like an asymmetrical balance for Jesus to drink the cup of God's full wrath and then for us to drink the cup of salvation in, in communion. So, I, it, I don't know, I'm just throwing that out there, but this idea of balance and is it asymmetrical balance? That, that happens in atonement, or is it more symmetrical? Thoughts about that? Sorry, I know that's kind of... Are you able to ask the question? I'm just trying to get a hold of what you're... Yeah, what is the question? Um, is atonement a, a, a balancing? I mean, um, well, like... Um, 
this for that, you know, like if we imagine the, a balance of scale. Okay, as a scale, okay. So on, on the one hand of that scale, you've got the cup of full cup of wrath that Jesus drinks. Mm-hmm. Cup of salvation. It seems like that's a kind of a balance, but it's quite an asymmetrical balance. Mm-hmm. On one side is exactly the same as, as the other, you know, symmetrical balance. Yeah, I mean, the need for the atonement and the reason for God's wrath is from the fall. And so before that, you know, the scale was even. You know, we were at peace with God. But then man fell into sin, and so then the balance was tipped. If we carry that same analogy, and so then his... Atonement is to make us, you know, to reconcile us with the Father, to put us at one. And then from that is the flowing forth of God's grace through his various means there. Now, do you have any other insights, Pastor, into that? Or I'm still trying to wrap my head around the question exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we can talk more after on that. Yeah. Okay. I understand it is, hey, we're becoming, we were with, before the fall, we were in communion with Christ. We fell out, now we're back in communion. So it's not a scale, it's a relationship part. We can talk more after, though. I'd be good to flesh that out a little bit more, I think. Uh, we've got just a couple more minutes here. It's back to verse 40. But to sit in my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. And so it is only the Father's to grant. And Veltz makes a connection of who is it prepared for? Well, we have two thieves on Christ's right and his left in that glory. And so that is for whom it was prepared. He doesn't spend much time elaborating on that, but it's an interesting parallel there. Then in 41, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. So they get mad that they didn't ask first. Of, Can I sit at your right and your left? They beat him to the, beat him in front of the line there. So even though likely they were all kind of Kind of wanting to ask that same question, but they probably weren't ready to have Jesus say, get behind me, Satan, again, or something like that. So they kind of stayed back, but James and John, they were ready. They were ready for it, so they had the guts to go ask. So they get mad at James and John, but Jesus called them, and to, called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So again, Jesus is just reshaping their thought of, you know, well, the Gentiles, when they have authority, they lord it over But what does it really mean, you know, Christ coming not to be served, but to serve? So likewise, the first, last, children, and all these same themes, he's constantly bringing in. So again, kind of to your point of earlier, how many times can he speak this to them before they understand what it it fully means? But it means I'll, again, just bring back the same common theme. It's an interesting note, translation note in 43 and 44. At the end of 43, they translate doulos, a servant. Then in 44, must be slave of all. Where's the consistency there? And so I like Pastor, whenever, he keeps, whenever it's servant, he always hears a no. Slave. Let's keep it, keep it consistent throughout here. So what that means. But any final questions on that?
So next week we'll look at Jesus healing blind Bartimaeus. Then we'll probably get into the triumphal entry. Then him cleansing the temple and so forth. But with that, the Lord be with you.